Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cross Border Kyle. Today I'm joined by a very good friend, a multiple time over author, investor, global traveler, and about 16 other different uh, titles that I could give him. Um, please welcome Andrew Romans, uh, co-founder, general partner of Rubicon Venture Capital and uh, 7BC, which I'll let him give further introduction about. Andrew, welcome. Hey, Kyle. Good to be here. Andrew, tell, give everyone a, a quick introduction about you and what you're doing because your bio that I have, I don't think does you enough justice based on what I know you do. Sure. Well, um, I'm really an entrepreneur, and and as an entrepreneur, I found my way into investing in venture capital. But I do think of myself as someone who starts and builds companies in my heart. Um, I had startups throughout high school, actually, and then college, and then I founded a company in 1997 where I actually raised over a hundred million dollars and went um, to IPO that company on the Nasdaq. And um, you know, once you've kind of, you know, cut class and, you know, started a company and you raise your first venture capital funding, it's quite addictive, actually. So it's hard to just go and become a product manager at Microsoft or work at Goldman Sachs after that. So you kind of keep going for it. Um, you know, I founded, I co-founded Rubicon Venture Capital with Joshua Siegel in 2014. We started investing out of 2014 and we've hit 105% IRR. So that puts us in, I think, like the top 4% performance of venture capital in the United States for that vintage year. Um, wow. And then, and then um, I've written, I've written two books on venture capital. Um, one is the entrepreneurial Bible to venture capital. And then the other, which has come out in a couple different languages. And then the other one is masters of corporate venture capital. And that helped us understand the corporates, develop relationships with them and raise money for our fund from corporations so that when we invest in a startup, we're able to facilitate partnerships with these big corporations in China and Japan and around the world. Um, and that helps the startup with getting revenue and distribution and sometimes even M&A, um, you know, because they buy the companies. Um, and then more recently... I got completely infected with the blockchain bug, and um, I've just written a book called Masters of Blockchain and Initial, and Initial Coin Offerings, and um, I'm using it a little bit like a platform to launch a new fund, which is 7BC, which is um, a 100% blockchain-focused venture capital fund and hedge fund. Wow. So... You have plenty of free time and a ton of hobbies, it sounds like. Um, but, I mean, Andrew, I, I, you, you've done so much. I, I actually remember reading your first two books and, and, and now have, have the third on the way. Um, what was some of the lessons that you learned um, when, when getting started in uh, becoming an author? I mean, being an entrepreneur, raising capital, I completely agree it's addicting. Um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's a ton of fun. Um, but then getting into writing um, and writing about what you know best, I mean, what lessons came out of that uh, from those books? Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Well, I mean, the, the books have been an interesting way of creating a network path to people in, you know, in the United States and around the world. Um, so, you know, I get invited you know, people sometimes pay me speaker fees and fly me first class or business class, sometimes even with my wife. And, you know, you go to Istanbul and then they introduce you to some billionaires there and yet you, you come home with a new investor and a new relationship that is a window into the Middle East and North Africa or something. Um, so, you know, that's been a, a really wonderful experience for me. Um, I think for the blockchain book, there Education is extremely important right now. The, the, the value that the blockchain can bring to every single industry, business, nonprofit, government, education, healthcare, everything is so, so significant that to have so many people uninformed is a real problem. So a lot of people, you know, crypto is sort of like a movement. And so a lot of people are really supportive of the book because I, 
I put in black and white, like what is legal and what is not. Like, for example, a lot of people right now, if you interview a bunch of VCs, if you go to a VC party tonight at the Rosewood Hotel with like 80 VCs there, and they're like, so Andrew, what's up? And I'm like, I can't stop thinking about crypto. They immediately like tighten up their body language and (laughs) they get really negative and they must stop making eye contact. And they're like, dude, you're going to go to prison in a fast car with all that shit. And, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, didn't you read the headlines? Like the SEC is cracking down on ICOs. And they read the headlines. The SEC is cracking down on ICOs, but they don't read the article. Right. The first paragraph probably says the SEC is going after someone who, um, in, in the process of completing a token offering, violated securities law. Like they, they, they should have filed an S1 or a Reg A plus or a 506C for what they did marketing and raising capital from non-accredited investors in the United States. So that's just a violation of the law. Someone else is doing an ICO that's fully compliant with a law. And then the second paragraph will say, yeah, the FBI just found some, some criminal in Miami who claims that like, you know, Ryan Gosling is, is on as an advisor to the company. And so is Tim Draper when they're not. So that's just a, it's a lie. And that's securities fraud. I wish the SEC had protected me against some bad investments I made where people fraudulently falsified bank statements and stuff before me investing. Like there's criminal activity that you got to protect yourself from. But so one of the things about the book is just saying, look, stop making these incorrect statements that this is illegal when you can be fully legally compliant with existing law in the United States and other jurisdictions. The SEC will drive new legislation in the future, but that's no reason to not invest in a token offering that you want to if it's compliant with existing law. So kind of part of the book is like explaining all this stuff. Like most people, they they know something about distributed ledger technology, but ask them to explain how Bitcoin mining works and how Ethereum mining works and how the blockchain actually works. And they don't understand it when in fact, it's very, very simple how Bitcoin what Bitcoin does, what it doesn't do, and how the mining works and how that blockchain is maintained and the amount of electricity it's consuming. The, and then, and then from there, I talk about how smart contracts, what, the importance of smart contracts and how they work and what they are and how Ethereum works and how it's a, a leap forward for mankind from, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain. And then, and then I talk about the, the, the problems with it. And then I talk about the new blockchains that are coming out that address all the problems Ethereum has. And then I kind of talk about all the applications of, you know, different industries that you can apply this to, to help people understand the, um, the opportunity and encourage people to invest in VC funds that make investments and to invest directly into, into crypto, you know, assets and to start companies and start solving problems you know, using this technology and tokenization, smart contracts, and blockchain. You know, it's it's funny. I, I I totally resonate with you on the you know going to a party, talking to investors, and seeing that kind of uh, tense up moment because uh, you know they see the headline but never read in depth. And it's it's funny because you have a new technology that comes out, and you know, blockchain has been around for for quite some time, but really in terms of uh, you know, mass adoption or mass media adoption, I should say, it's, it's still relatively new and everyone panics where all the examples you just gave are the exact same things that happen to standard companies, startups and, and the like that just may not get the same type of headline um, because they're not the latest and greatest, you know, flashy object that will, will drive a lot of uh, eyeballs for media. And, and I say that having been in media and and, and, and understanding the industry. It's, it's just fascinating how, uh, everyone freaks out about the small things, but aren't actually looking at the underlining issue is, you know, when it came to regulation and legal, and you brought this up, I mean, this was an industry that rapidly grew. I mean, it spread like wildfire. And there were a lot of concerns as to, what should we or what should we not do? What do we have to do and what do we not have to do? Where do we file? Where do we not file? And some of those were hard lessons learned. Uh, some of them were kind of, you know, 
you didn't even consider this. <laughs> Others where you did consider this, but you just completely uh, ignored it. And now we're coming to a point where things are getting regulated and clear. I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I would be at that party high-fiving you versus tensing up and saying you're going to jail. Well, the, I mean, $240 million was the amount of money raised in ICOs in 2016, and $5.6 billion was raised in 2017, and a lot of that was November, December, and, and some October. Right. So things went up really high, and then um, th- th- what happened was people like me uploaded U.S. dollars or fiat currency to into Ether, buying Ether, so that we could buy into ERC-20 token offerings. So the, the only way to get in on most of those ICOs was in November, December, October was um, with Ether. So you had to buy, you know, you know, Ether on the Ethereum network. But and so if you owned Ether, you probably didn't want to sell it. And so it's a bid ask world world of what's the price of Ether. And with everyone trying to buy Ether at the same time so that they could then exchange it for the new cryptocurrency being issued, the new token offerings. It drove the price of Ether up like crazy, which was correlated to Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin and Ether went up like crazy. Then after these startups raised 5.6 billion US dollars worth of Ether and Bitcoin, they had their New Year's Eve parties. And after their hangover wore off, they said, we better sell some of this Ether and Bitcoin for fiat so that we can pay for office space and salaries and start building these projects we promised to deliver. And so at that point, no one was trying to buy Ether or Bitcoin because um, other than pure speculators, because there was no ICOs really getting off the ground in early January. And everybody, all those companies were selling it. So when all of them were selling it in the bid ask world, nobody really wanted to buy it. Everyone was selling it. Then they saw the price going down. They said, oh, my God, we better sell our $20 million of Ether before it's worth nothing. And so it was kind of like a run in the bank and the price went down. So a lot of people are like, boy, you can really hurt yourself investing in this stuff because of the volatility. Now, when you see that much volatility, the first thing you should do is raise a hedge fund and make 50% IRR on the vol. If there's a lot of volatility, then there's money to be made with algorithmic trading. You don't even need a lot of creativity to do that. But one of the reasons why the VCs tense up and hate crypto, most of my VC colleagues, is that the deal flow they're seeing is really the worst quality deal flow they've ever witnessed in their career. <laughs> like, you know, in, in, a, in a biotech company, you raise enough money to go through phase one clinical trials and test this drug and see if it on animals and see if it kills the rat. Then if you get good efficacy, then you raise more money to go into phase two on humans. And if you get good efficacy results there, then you raise money for the next on a bigger set of humans and does it beat the best drug? You don't walk into the VC, biotech VC and say, I need money to go through phase one, two, three, and four clinical trials and I need it right now. It's just not the way the world works. Right, they right. put the money in at in stages um, and they hit a milestone and then you raise more. In the IT world, it's kind of the same. You have pre-seed, get into an accelerator, friends and family, demo day money, raise money during before the demo day, during the accelerator. Then it's like late stage seed, seed extension, and then it's series A and then B and C and D. You don't just walk in and get all the money up front. And so for a normal VC on Sand Hill Road, it doesn't feel right when the entrepreneur says, I'm raising um, 50 to or like 1.5 million is my minimum soft cap and my hard cap is 100 million. So we're hoping to get oversubscribed on 100 million. And the VC goes, all right, so how much revenue have you got? Oh, we're pre-revenue. In fact, the whole team is all volunteer. We've never even had a single payroll month. Um, this is all idea stage, but we've got a painful, like, 200-page paper, like a 50-page white paper on it. No Essentially reason. a business plan. Yeah, no one's read a business plan since the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so like, it's one, it's like, I don't have time to read 50 trash white papers, and, and it's all pre-revenue, pre-seed. Most VCs just do late seed and A. They don't do pre-seed. Right. They're not set up to look through all that garbage. They, they, if you've raised, like Rubicon says on our homepage, if you haven't raised a million dollars, don't email us. We don't have time to read. We don't do pre-seed. And, and, and if you've already raised a million, then that's a lot of filtering of all the trash. 
And then, so the ICOs often are massive pre-seeds seeking to raise a lot of money, and they're often not selling equity, or if they are, the minimum valuation they come in is like a $10 million pre-money valuation, which might be, in the real world, get like a $3 million or $5 million cap like valuation. So instead of the three or five million, they're, they're, they're basically saying uncapped, no valuation or 10 or 15. I've even seen people come in at a hundred million pre when they probably would not be able to get into 500 startups because they haven't done anything yet. I've seen the same so, thing. It's so fascinating. VC, yeah. So the VCs are like, look, I'm sorry. This is bullshit. And then, and then, um, you know, VCs will say, you're, you're not building real companies. Every one of these tokens is such trash. They're all going to inevitably go to zero. And you're just um, uh, promoting it after you invest it to, to fill it with hot air and pump up the price so you can dump it. Yep. So this is literally pump and dump, boiler room, go to jail, you know, fraud. And so a lot of people just hate it. Now, the thing is, I agree with them on 99% of the projects. But the 1% of the projects are really badass. They're going to be the next Amazon.coms of the world. Like if you just look at um, McGraw-Hill. So McGraw-Hill published my first book and I hate them. They, 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 <laughs> Any like, particular if, reason? <laughs> um, actually, so many. I said, I said, if you don't remove your right to publish my next two books, I'm going to publish my list of reasons on my blog. <laughs> And, and they, they released me from that, um, that, that I, I have to give them an option to publish my next two books. Thank God. So like, like when, so they're supposed to pay me 22%, 22.5% as a royalty. And so we have a contract that I wish was a smart contract and I wish it were on the blockchain because I run the numbers and I was like, all right, so for this many books being sold, according to my 22.5% after my agent gets 15% of my U.S. sales and 25% of my royalty per international, which is crazy, that that um, you seem to be selling the book somewhere for $2 a copy. I would like to buy 2,000 copies at that $2 price. And then they come back and say, well, I don't know where it's being sold at these prices, but we, we don't share that information with authors. And I'm like, well, <laughs> show me how much money you sold the book for so I can check your math if I'm getting my full 22.5% here. And they say, sorry, Andrew, we don't share that information with authors. And they have a centralized ledger where they keep the numbers on what they're doing, and they're not sharing that with me. Well, whenever you see a large company extracting huge profits for an un, a really lousy, bad service, that's a target for blockchain. What should happen is that a publisher should either move their existing business, like McGraw-Hill, should move onto the blockchain and say, whenever a book is sold, a smart contract will pay the, the agent their, their percentage and the author her percentage, and it should be real time. I get paid nine months after the book is sold, which is crazy. Wow. Um, it's hard, if I go to Chicago for a book tour, and I might not get paid for nine months to reimburse my expenses you know, for going to promote it. So just putting that information on 10,000 smartphones or computers where I have a key to access the information is going to make an honest business out of dishonest um, McGraw-Hill. And, and it's not only the publishing industry, it's real estate. You can basically say to anyone listening to this podcast, let me ask you as a listener, have you ever entered into a contractual agreement that you felt was not honored completely? Like, did McGraw-Hill screw you like they're screwing me? Or did they pay you later than they should have? All then, then that same industry that you work in can be improved with blockchain. Americans can do business in the Congo and Zimbabwe without fear of going into exotic Africa and where they're worried about being, you know, promises being fulfilled. So the opportunity for business to be done in this honest manner is just enormous when you so so distributed ledger for business is a massive deal smart contracts you know you pre-program a mortgage-backed security that every time grandma pays her mortgage or doesn't pay her mortgage that directly impacts the self-executing mortgage-backed security the idea that someone is doing mortgage-backed securities without smart contracts 
is like doing a private equity deal without a spreadsheet. Imagine manually with a pencil and an eraser trying to make a spreadsheet for a levered up, we're going to go buy Teledenmark TDC with, with 12x debt. So we're, we're about to enter a new period in society and business where there's no way to have a hanging chad on an, electoral, on an election in Florida. It'll just become a thing of the past. And, um, you, you, you know, self-executing securities is going to be a big deal. And the idea of tokenization and token economic theory is going to change the way capital markets work and how airlines, you know, you know, pay for these expensive airplanes that we run around in. So, so when someone says it's all rubbish and every one of these tokens is going to go to zero, that may be true for 99% of the ICOs that we have now. But in about one year from now, if you just look at the portfolio of seven blockchain venture capital, you'll see all transformational companies that are taking down McGraw-Hill or working with McGraw-Hill to clean up their very dirty business. And that's going to be huge. And it's, it's, it's wild because those 99%, I mean, the other thing that people have to remember is the, the idea of a, a traditional ICO as we know it today and, and, and tokenization, this has only been around for uh, about a year, maybe a year, year and a half in, in terms of mass. So we're, we're seeing the beginnings of this, right? Where ideas are being sifted through. You, you get the, the good, the bad, the really, really, really ugly. But that 1% is, is going to grow over time to being more companies, um, more, legitimate lie, legitimized, uh, opportunities. I mean, you're, you're mentioning things like, you know, doing cross border and, and globalized business. We, we went from not really being fully global to introducing the internet to bringing on mobile to bringing on things like crowdfunding or crowd, uh, crowd economics, which start to bring new consumers and emerging and attractiveness to emerging markets. So now your product goes from selling in the state of California to being sold in 80 countries around the world to now being able to do business anywhere on any scale in almost any industry with the promise or the trust that, like you said, something's going to get done. I mean, that's a fascinating world to think that from 365 days today, we're going to be in a whole new world from that perspective. I mean, that goes beyond thinking of where technology is pushing us, but really how business is moving you know, the idea that I can buy uh, fractional ownership into something or from token perspective, uh, you know, airlines can be tokenized or that from a contract perspective, I can do a contract with you while you're in Japan and while I'm in uh, South Africa and we never are actually sitting in the same place, but we know that the contract got done and we know that when we are in Dubai and you're in Australia that the contract got executed and that when you're in another country and I'm in the well, that the payment got pushed, that's that makes yeah, things I mean, so I mean, much more efficient. I mean, it's absurd that um, people invest into Rubicon Venture Capital and need to trust that Joshua and I are paying them their share of the exit. It should it it, it should be um, you should write up the contract and put it into software, and right. the software does it. So the, the idea that, you know, someone has free will to, you know, log into our Silicon Valley bank account or our First Republic bank account and maybe not pay someone what we're supposed to and be a criminal. Um, you know, if I, if I go crazy and decide not to pay Andre Yegi in Zurich, his part of the exit, um, it's one less thing for him to worry about when it's put into software. But talk about like, um, you know, the globalizing thing and your cross-border theme of your podcast that uh, a quick story, which I one of the case studies I, I review in my book is a really good friend of mine, old friend of mine, Tony Pierce. He founded Player X. I knew him from the Founders Club days. He raised venture capital funding for that and then he sold it and everyone made a ton of money and he's he he's quite a rich guy. He decided for his new company, Reality Clash, it's like Pokemon Go, but it's a shoot 'em up augmented reality game. So, like, yes, I can, know it very, very well. You do so, like, you know, you yeah. can say, all right, I'm going to go to the shopping mall in Santa Monica, whip out my phone, open the game, and it says, there's 10 people in the mall that want to be shot and shoot at you. And I can run around and, and it's, I look through the phone like it's a video or I'm taking a photo on my iPhone. 
and I start hitting a shoot button and I see bullets hitting you in the face or something. So for, for that game, instead of raising venture capital funding and then make the game with the money he raised from the VC and then spend money with advertisements on the internet trying to get people to download the game and start doing this augmented reality Pokemon shoot 'em up go thing, he instead did an ICO where he put really fun ads on the internet in Korea, in Korean language, as well as back then China was still on, and all over the world saying um, the only way to buy this limited edition gun and use it in the game is with the Reality Clash token. So become a virtual arms dealer, and you know this gun, you can sell it at any time for whatever the exchange, whatever it's selling on the exchange for. And so he made virtual goods that can only be purchased in his economy with the token, and he raised $11 million in a token offering. He didn't sell any equity in his business. He just said, look, this is the logic of the token economics of why I believe the token's going to go up in value. Whenever people play the game, you know, if you want to use the tokens, you, you know, the only way to do things is with the token. And every time you pay with a token, he'll burn the token. So it's the, op- the opposite of quantitative easing when the Fed is, you know, printing more dollars, which increases the money supply of dollars compared to the demand for dollars. And so the exchange rate goes down or up. The, he's, he's, he's reducing the total number of tokens in the money supply over time, which makes people think that the token will go up in value. And as the game becomes more popular, the token will come up in value. So what he did was instead of having cost of acquiring a customer compared to lifetime value, like a CAC to LTV ratio using venture capital dollars, he went directly to his fan base and built up a fan base. And the game is coming out in September on time. And he did the ICO in August of 2017. And he's already got $11 million worth of people who can't wait to start running around shooting each other on the game. So it was a new entrepreneur you know, tool in the toolbox of how can you fund your business while at the same time creating a fan base. And, and and it's kind of like um like internet businesses like Kayak or Expedia Travelocity, they know if they can get me to book my plane ticket to London and a hotel through them, it'll generate two hundred dollars of lead gen money for them revenue. So they can spend up to two hundred bucks to get me to come to Expedia. So they'll put an ad on LinkedIn or wherever they think they can find me to get me to buy that ticket. And as long as they spend under two hundred dollars, they have positive unit economics. And the sky's the limit. They can just saturate the market, spending up to 200 bucks to make 200 in revenue, grow the revenue, and be profitable. With these ICOs, you see companies spending money by speaking at conferencing, at conferences, road showing, ads on the internet, influence marketing, all this kind of stuff, in a way that's compliant with the law in whatever jurisdiction that they're marketing in, um, and raising capital for their business, but also promoting their business. And it's essentially running advertisement and promoting the business. So it's a different way of entrepreneurship right now. It's extremely important to pay attention to what the SEC and the IRS and the CFTC, you know, say is legit. But um, it's it's uh, it's very different than the old world of venture capital. Nice. The, yeah. yeah. Well, another, th- another thing to say, which is insane, is VC has been conventionally very illiquid. So if I go to Y Combinator Demo Day and sit through 110 pitches over two days, and then on the third day I've got speed dates with the 20 or 30 companies that I liked the most and I asked to meet with, and then I invest in the 10 that I like the most. So maybe I do $100,000 in each into 10 companies, so I invest a million dollars. If these companies are going to IPO or go M&A, you're really looking at three to five years before you really get your money back. Minimum, right? I mean, minimum. And some, you know, like Facebook was like seven years or open table was nine years to get to an, an IPO on the NASDAQ. Yeah. And then you might have a one-year lockup after they're on the NASDAQ. So what, what's happening here is that you invest in the pre-sale or the public sale of an ICO. And within a few weeks, the expectation is that it's going to be listed on cryptocurrency exchanges and you will have liquidity and you can sell your shares. At Rubicon, we have a policy that we only invest in financing rounds that will give the startup an 18-month runway before they would run out of cash. 
So even if sales is flat with whatever the expenses are, the burn rate, that it'll last at least 18 months. I don't want to see my CEO put his knee pads on and go fundraising, you know, right away. So with the, with the ICOs, these companies are raising enough money to typically last at least 18, 24, 36 months. And if the investor figures out that this company is not good and it's not going to work and the thesis just didn't prove out to work, they can probably get all their money back or a lot of their money back long before the company runs out of money. Mm -hmm. So an investor can, you know, invest in your top 10. So let's assume every YC company is going to be issuing security tokens within a year. And they probably will be. Maybe, maybe it'll take three years, but three years, I assure you, they're all going to be security tokens then. That when they list on cryptocurrency exchanges, you'll be able to get a lot of your money back quite quickly. And if the company's generating good news and it's oversubscribed and they really did a good job on the token economics, that um, within a few months, you should be able to see like a 2x or 20x increase in value of the token and you can get your $100,000 back. So now imagine you invested a million bucks across 10 ICOs and within six months, you paid yourself back more than $2 million and you left the rest to go, you know, hopefully gamble and go up in value and make more money. So I should be able to go back to my existing investors to raise the next venture capital fund, not every three years, but probably once a year. Um, cause, cause I already paid my investor back all their money back in under a year. So I should be able to go back to them a year later and say, do you want to re up into the next fund? Um, so it's a game changer for venture capital. It's a game changer for investors and LPs. It's a game changer for the startups. And I think that every airline is going to tokenize their frequent flyer mile program. And they're going to give you incentives to book your ticket with their token frequent flyer miles. They'll give you discounts or they'll give you access to the business lounge or the short security line like, like they do with the credit cards. Or they'll randomly upgrade you or let you check a bag or something if you buy with tokens and you're going to see airlines issue billions of dollars worth of tokens that don't count as equity in the business, but it's the way to, to operate in their economy. And if you if you buy something on the sky mall using tokens during the flight, they'll give you like a 20% discount. And so they could become bigger than amazon.com based on the number of people they're carting around and interacting with on their phones and on their computers and in the, in the chair on the airplane and on your boarding pass and all that crap. So the big companies are going to tokenize. I predict every Fortune 1000 company is going to delist from the NASDAQ and the other big LSE Nikkei and, and convert the securities into token securities that have software code in them and some utility. And allow for fractional ownership versus individualized ownership or go beyond that and and uh, open up a new kind of a, almost a new economy for themselves or a new revenue line. It's going to be, it's going to be the way companies pay each other. So like, you know, I recently bought a uh, Microsoft office to run on my new MacBook pro that I bought in um, an Apple store in Stanford. So I walk in the store and I buy that with Fiat and I paid 150 bucks for the Microsoft Excel and, you know, PowerPoint and stuff. And they, and I assume that they're going to pay some of that $150 from Apple to Microsoft. And it probably is not an instantaneous payment where the minute I hit, you know, beep on the barcode, it should make the payment to Microsoft. But should Apple um, take my Apple stock as payment, which they I probably buy the Apple stock before I go into the store so I can get a 5% discount or a better service agreement. And then I buy it with Apple stock and then they can, that essentially becomes a buyback of their stock the minute they receive that payment. They can pay Microsoft with Apple stock. There's no reason to go back into fiat when paying Microsoft. And the treasury management at Microsoft can say, do I want to convert that into Microsoft shares? Do I want to go long on Apple stock? Or do I want to convert it into USD? Or do I want to convert it into yen? Or do I want to convert it into another cryptocurrency that I'm doing business with who offers me an incentive to pay them with their stock? And so you're going to see businesses paying each other with stock, all interexchangeable 
on cryptocurrency exchanges with no need to be toying around with fiat. And if Apple knows something that Microsoft is doing, like if Apple is selling a division of their business to Microsoft, that's insider trading information they can exploit legally. So, you know, so Oracle might decide to offer a discount for people paying them with Oracle stock rather than fiat right before they go and acquire Salesforce because they know they're, that they're going to go up in value after it. Today, they would borrow money in debt. They would issue a bond, borrow money, and buy their stock back on the open market. In the future, they would um, give incentives to pay them with their own stock as a way of buying stock back right before an acquisition. I mean, this is, a, this is economies at mass scale. I, I mean, the, the, this is not just... Okay, we've got a, a basic economy or we've got a, an advanced economy. I mean, this is economies and new revenue lines and new business lines constantly being developed and yeah. everyone's a part of it. If anyone listening to this podcast works at an airline, they should have their like CFO and head of strategy give us a phone call and we can help you raise billions of dollars in a token offering and you have so much money you could stick a business lounge that'll look like, you know, Emirates Airlines in, in Dubai. And you could stick that business lounge in every single airport and say, if you buy your ticket with our token, you get access to this lounge, which is like nicer than any hotel you've ever been to. Which you and I would do all day. I mean, the, the airlines that we fly, the airlines that we're attached to, the amount of uh, airports that we're in, it just makes sense. And loyalty programs are completely built around this premise. I mean, yeah. Starbucks is going to be keen to do this. Uh, I mean, airlines, uh, gift cards, you name it. I mean, this is what those loyalty programs are that we have hundreds of, uh, whether they are apps or I'm opening up my wallet on, uh, on my iPhone. It's like there is Marriott, SPG, American Airlines, Starbucks, Southwest, yada, yada, yada. They all have lo- loyalty programs. This is perfect yeah. for them. If- whoever on your list you just mentioned does not tokenize is going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. I agree. It's, it's like leveraging data. It's, it's, it's the idea of starting to build communities versus just a customer as a number. I completely agree. I mean, this is something that you have to do either get, get in and fit in or, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, pray for the best to happen. Yeah, I mean, the last one to work at McGraw-Hill before they go bankrupt, turn off the lights. They, <laughs> so, so, so large companies are the big winners here, and, um, and, and uh, they will provide incentives to drive our behavior in ways that they want. Um, and so, but they need, they need to get real wizards who understand token economic theory to advise them on how to do it and how much money they can raise. And, you know, for a large business to come up with a couple extra billion dollars onto their balance sheet through a token offering um, and excite a whole bunch of customers to do things they want them to do is a good thing. Look, Domino's Pizza is like the worst pizza in the world. So, like, you know, I, you know, I would never eat Domino's Pizza, but... I've got some competition for you there, but I won't challenge you on today's cast for that. But I, I got some challenges. <laughs> All right. So, with Domino's Pizza, they could say, if you place your order um, with using the Domino's token, then we'll give you 50% off on up to $25 on orders more than $50. So, like, you know, they can get you to place an order for 50 bucks. And they'll give you 50% off your first $25 because you paid with the token. And they, and by doing that, they can raise more than a billion dollars. And I, so they raise more than a billion dollars of pre-sales and they didn't even give up much. They're just arbitraging their wholesale to retail pricing. Like Costco's gets, gets everyone to give them an extra 50 bucks to upgrade to become executive and get up to 2% back on up to $2,000 of purchasing and it creates loyalty and they're borrowing money, you know, below LIBOR by doing that. Like that's the lowest interest rate loan you've ever heard of. And it's incentivizing people to, you know, spend more money in the store. And when they pay you your 2% back, it's in a check that can only be used in Costco. So it's like a cryptocurrency, but 
but it's not tradable. Once you give liquidity to it and you've got good economic thing, then you're going to see Goldman Sachs putting a billion dollars of their own money into these token offerings because they know they can make money. It's it's true, and I, I think you know Dom, Domino's. You hit it right. I, I just saw they just launched uh, a program now. If you don't have an address, so you're out and about traveling around town, and you want to pick up a pizza, they actually have uh, like pin drop locations, uh, which no other company has. So now to introduce a token, for instance, I, I can see that as a a clear path forward. But in, in general, uh, globally, I think what we're going to start to see is. You know, what you're mentioning, and we'll see what people actually want, what they don't want, and what we didn't know we needed. So, you know, the the pizza example or, or or loyalty program is perfect. Of, you know, what pizza is a huge driver. It is something that people are willing to pay for. People want. They want more benefits. Whereas a, another loyalty program may actually not really be a viable business any longer. It, it may not be a product that people want. That company either has to adjust or move on. So when you spend a lot of time in the blockchain world and in meeting with blockchain people all day long, you uh, you start to understand a problem that like this is the way things should happen, but it doesn't work because this doesn't exist. So for example, Mark Andreessen, I heard him say once that if he could have got, if he could get in a time machine and go back to when he created Mosaic, the first browser which became Netscape. Um, he, he said he didn't put like Bitcoin in there. If he had put a way of an electronic payment from one party to the other party right in the browser, then that, that's like the missing piece that he, he, he should have put in there. That you can right now with where we are, there's a lot of missing pieces and there's a lot of things that, that work, but it's not efficient or it's expensive or it's environmentally uh, disastrous. So there's, it's easy to come up with protocol layer open source code infrastructure things like putting payment into a browser that solve problems. Like what are the issues of tax for Microsoft to receive payment in Apple stock and the stock goes up in price before they exchanged it for Microsoft stock. So there's all kinds of FinTech and um, software kind of kernel layer, low level infrastructure stuff that needs to be done. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of railroad infrastructure that needs to be created. And so there's a, a big opportunity for entrepreneurs and VCs to partner on creating all of this stuff that's badly needed. And, and then there's lots of kind of applications like elections and things or loyalty programs that are applications, but that can secretly be infrastructure. Like if you get somebody to download a United Airlines app, you can all of a sudden store numbers on a ledger inside of that app. You know what I mean? Like there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, a mix of infrastructure stuff and application stuff that some of which are like legitimate, you know, uh, Trojan horse type things that are, that are, you know, moral and legal, but are, are huge opportunities. So, when someone says, if you see some, you know, some Eastern European entrepreneur trying to raise $100 million for a total crap ICO that the investor's only thesis is, I'm going to get liquid and dump it, and that's the one that the Sand Hill Road VC thinks it's all rubbish, they're, they're missing a lot. Like, you could just create a venture studio and come up with your own startup ideas and fund those and probably you know, outperform, you know, some, the top 5% of conventional venture capital firms. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's what we're going to start seeing based on our conversation and what I'm also seeing in the market that I think people are going to, certain people at least, will find those those studio houses and just one after another after another, create an idea, validate it, raise for it, spin it out and, and give it a team to, to kind of grow and uh, allow for the economics to to take and and grow with it. So, Andrew, uh, rapid fire, real quick as we we wrap up. Um, what is your favorite airport lounge? Um, Istanbul Turkish Airlines. Beautiful. Like, do you know it? Yeah, I, I got a chance to spend a little bit of time in it uh, in December. I was blown away. Absolutely yeah. blown away. <laughs> um, 
where is probably the hottest place in the world right now for cryptocurrency? New York City. All right. And lastly, where can people find you next? I know you're going on tour and you're doing a little traveling. Where can people find you uh, either at an event or uh, in the world? I'm flying to New York City today. Um, you know, I live in Silicon Valley, but um, you know, we have an office in the Meatpacking District in New York, and uh, we're doing a rooftop party for the LPs and the founders of Rubicon Venture Capital on Monday night. And then Tuesday night, so that's an exclusive event for our guys, but Tuesday night, I've got an event that's open to the world. Um, I'm, I'm giving everybody a free copy of my new book, Masters of Blockchain and Initial Coin Offerings. And um, it's at Denton's in Midtown. If you go to um, if you go to seven BC BC like blockchain dot VC, I think if you click on events, there's a link to it. But um, that's an event we're doing Tuesday night. I've got a panel of CEOs that have all completed pretty big, significant like fifty million plus ICOs, and so they'll be talking about their experiences and where the market is now. And then I've got a panel of all crypto VCs like Consensus and Pantera Capital and a bunch of other cool investors that only invest in blockchain and, and tokens. Um, the big thing for me right now is 7BC. So it's 7blockchain.vc, you know, points to 7bc.vc, the domain on the web. But basically, we've got a fund to invest into blockchain companies where we can buy equity. So a lot of these guys think they're just going to go directly to an ICO, but I think they might be smart to raise a couple million dollars and put people on a payroll and build a minimum viable product, maybe even get some customers before doing the ICO. And then and that same fund will buy tokens, investing into the token offering. And, um, and, then, and then we help them by introducing them to all the other crypto VCs that we know all around the world to try to oversubscribe these rounds, hit the hard cap, get it fully financed in the token offering, and then have so much demand that couldn't get an allocation or the big enough allocation they wanted. And then we will introduce them to exchanges where we have relationships. So we get them listed on cryptocurrency exchanges. And then we have a hedge fund that starts off as like an S&P 500, making uh, theoretically good returns on the volatility of Bitcoin, Ether. So that fund is uh, distributed across the top 40 cryptocurrencies by market cap. But then when these new cryptocurrencies hit the exchange, we'll be the very first to invest into it out of our hedge fund, which has got algorithmic and manual trading decisions at play. So we're kind of doing everything the startup needs. We help them with equity money. We help them with token investing. We help them get introduced to other VCs and we'll do real old school due diligence on them introduce you know letting the other VCs see our DD reports where every phone call we documented and verifying facts and claims and then we uh, put money into them um, once they're listed and uh, you know make money on volatility of all these different cryptocurrencies um, and then we also are providing consulting to large corporations like airlines or Domino's pizza or any of these other guys we've got a team of 25 venture partners and growing that are all kind of crypto wizards that have all raised um, collectively billions of dollars actually in ICOs from our team. And we're advising large corporations on how they could, if they're going to get screwed by blockchain, what would that look like? That's worth you know paying for to see that coming and then show them opportunities of how they can apply you know, tokenization, smart contracts and distributed ledger technology in their back office or front office. So we think that the consulting thing is good because it fits with my master's of corporate venture capital that I really like to create partnerships between large companies and startups, which really drives revenue and success. And sometimes they even invest like corporate VCs or they go M&A and they just have to own and buy the company. Um, so that's another part of it. And if for anyone in your podcast audience, um, we are recruiting what we call city managing directors. So we're getting people that live in different cities like Seoul, South Korea, Singapore, Tokyo, Kuala Lumpur, you know, Osaka, Houston, Dallas, all over the United States and around the world, that we're going to have pitching events where we'll have the best ICOs we can find pitch to accredited and institutional investors. And so we'll basically, when we invest in a startup, we'll say, 
We'll make introductions. We'll have virtual pitching where we KYC and AML, the investor, making sure that they're legally compliant to invest in the ICO as per the terms of, of that ICO. And then um, we will let them roadshow until they're oversubscribed. And that's what the startup needs. They, you know, A lot of them pay money to pitch a conference that's filled with other entrepreneurs that are trying to sell tokens, and there's not that many investors there. So having good roadshows all over the world, it's important to complete your ICO. And the bad news is that after you complete an ICO, you got to keep roadshowing and support your token and give information and updates so you're not just correlated to the price of Bitcoin and Ether, but people are making investment decisions based on the information that you're releasing. Because right now, investment banks are not researching, tracking, and recommending you know, these cryptocurrencies the way they, they eventually will. So um, the roadshow thing is important, so we're actively looking to grow that. Um, I hope to have about 30 cities with quarterly events within a year. That's awesome. This is, this is incredibly exciting. Andrew, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today and sharing everything about uh, the ICO venture and, and, and blockchain industries. This is incredibly exciting. I can't wait to uh, get the new book and uh, sit down and run through it. Um, everybody, make sure you check out 7bc.vc. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes um, along with Andrew's social handles and, and Rubicon Ventures where you can find Andrew um, and the upcoming event as well. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, cool. And you can find the book. If you just search Andrew Romans on Amazon, you can you can find the books. Perfect. All right, everybody. We'll put everything in the show notes for you. Thank you for joining another uh, Cross Border Kyle show. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, Kyle. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.